Uh, it is a joy to be with you all this morning, and uh, it's a sweet thing to get to serve in a small way at this church that is pastored by a man who has served me in many ways over many years, and so y'all are very blessed to have Ben as your pastor. He is a delight and a gift to you all. And it's sweet to be with you guys. Uh, many of you, I know, I recognize your faces. You may recognize mine even behind the beard. Uh, but let's go to God's word. Let's hear the word of the Lord in Psalm 139. It reads this way. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I ask that you would bring your word to your people through your servant this morning. Through your Holy Spirit, please open up our ears to hear your voice speaking to us. Open up our hearts to receive from you, God to speak into the midst of our lives and our situations, of our pain and our hurt and our joy and our worries and our fears. And would you open up our hands to not just hear your word, but to respond to it, God. I ask that you would do these things for your good, for your glory, God, and for our benefit. I ask this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
If you've been a Floridian uh, through at least one hurricane season, you're probably familiar with the phrase, hunker down. Uh, Hunker down, it's this phrase that meteorologists use for us Floridians when a hurricane is about to hit us. And when you're hunkered down, you just don't know. You don't know exactly where the hurricane is going to make landfall. You don't know how fast the winds are going to be. You don't know when you'll lose power, how long you'll be without power, how deeply grateful you will be for air conditioning when the power finally does come back on. When I was in seventh grade, my family was hunkered down for a hurricane, and our lives were entirely changed. While we were trying to get ready and stay safe in our house, the back half of our roof was flipped off. Uh, While we found shelter in our garage, our ceilings collapsed, and as the rain freely fell in our home, most all of our possessions were destroyed. During that next year, while we rebuilt our house and in many ways rebuilt our lives, there was so much that I did not No, I didn't know how to deal with a storm of emotions that was raging inside my own heart. As I worked through losing my sense of home, as I worked through losing my sense of safety and security, I didn't know what in the world was going to be next. Some of us are in a similar season right now. You're in a season where your lives are full of more questions than answers, more pain than joy, and the future feels wildly unknown. And if that's not you right now, the chances are that there's someone in your life, someone in your circle, someone in your community that is in that season of struggle. And if we're honest, we all know that if life is good right now, the next season is somewhere around the corner coming to get us You see, we all face times when we don't know. We don't know how to feel. We don't know what to think. We don't know how to respond to the chaos that is surrounding us. And it's in this sort of season of not knowing that David, the psalmist here, writes Psalm 139. We pick up on this context of struggle in verse 19 where David cries out, O men of blood, depart from me. Now, there's some debate about what exactly is happening in David's life as he writes this psalm. Um, But whatever the exact situation is, it's clear in a general sense that he is surrounded, he's attacked, he's oppressed by violent men. And so David is in a season of struggle. And it's in such a season that this psalm offers us this big idea. God knows, so trust him. If you're taking notes, this is a great place to start. God knows, so trust him. I mean, those are simple words. Those are simple words that are profoundly difficult to live out, but are absolutely necessary for us in the midst of the stormy seasons of life. So let's start with the first part of this big idea. God knows. The first 18 verses of Psalm 139, they contain some of the most beautiful, some of the most memorable passages in Scripture about how God works, about what he does in our lives. 
But it's important to remember that David didn't write the first 18 as some sort of uninvolved theological thinker, but as a pressured person in communion with God. What we find in these first 18 verses, it's not an intellectualized theology, it's an internalized theology as David has experienced God and is experiencing God in the midst of his struggle. In verse 1, David writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. And then right at the very end in verse 23, he emphasizes the same thing again. We see it when he writes, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See, God's knowledge is the focus of this psalm. It's at the heart of of what's going on in David as he's processing and working through his distress. God's knowledge is David's hope in the midst of loss. It's his lifeline in the middle of the storm. It's his confidence within his chaos. But why? What is it about God's knowledge that can feel so safe, so uplifting to David, that could feel so safe and so uplifting to you in your season of struggle? David describes God's knowledge in three ways in these first 18 verses. What we see first in verses 2 through 6 is that God's knowledge is comprehensive. God's knowledge is comprehensive. He writes this, You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, you search out my path and my lying down, and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. What we see here is that God knows everything. There's no thought, no intention, no plan, no action that is hidden from or passed over by God. This should simultaneously be comforting and absolutely frightening. See, it's comforting because you can know you're not going to fall through the cracks of God's plan. You're never unnoticed. You're never ignored by God. God knows all the details of your life from when you wake up to when you lie down and everything that happens in between. And God understands your inner life better than you do. He knows how you think He knows what you'll say even before you do. See, this is not just comforting, but it's also frightening because God knows everything. He knows all the details of your life, even and maybe even especially those ones we try to hide from others and maybe even ourselves to mask, to bury, to get rid of guilt and shame. And he understands your inner life Completely, so that even your unsaid hurtful words or your unexpressed sinful thoughts are known to him. God's knowledge is comprehensive. He knows everything. If you're in a season of struggle right now, this means that God sees and God knows your pain. He knows your loss. 
he knows your hurt. Is your pain right now laced with anxiety? Because it feels like nobody could understand what I'm going through. Have you kept your questions, your worries, your fears, your doubts to yourself? Hidden away for so long that you don't even know how you would start to share them with someone else. Are you spiritually suffocating under the oppressive weight of unexpressed emotions and uncommunicated hurt? Though no one else may know in this moment what's happening in the chaos and the storm in your heart and in your mind, and though no one else may fully understand what's happening, God knows. He knows everything. Your pain is not invisible. Your struggle is not unknown to God. He knows exactly what you're feeling. He knows exactly what you're going through. You are seen and you are known by God. Now, if you're, if you're in relationship with someone, if you're walking alongside You're supporting someone who is walking through a season of struggle right now. This is exactly what they need, not just from God, but from you too. They need you to know and acknowledge their pain and their grief. As a first step in walking with someone who is hurting and struggling, they need you to lean into their lament with empathy, listening, and the heart of a learner who doesn't have to give an answer for why the pain, but who will grieve with them in the pain. You see, this is not only what hurting individuals need, but this is what hurting communities need too. I mean, too often in the last year alone, not to mention the decades and hundreds of years in this country, communities of color have publicly grieved inequity, injustice, and loss, but they've so frequently had their grief met with why answers that attempt to minimize or explain away their pain. If you're white like me, our black and our brown brothers and sisters, they need us to lean into their lament with empathy, with listening, with the heart of a learner who does not seek to minimize or explain away their pain, but to lean right into it with them so that we might know it and acknowledge it. And why would we do that? We need to do that hard work because that is how God treats us. That is how God treats us when we are hurting. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't explain it away. He leans in and he knows it with a knowledge that is comprehensive. The second way David describes God's knowledge, we see in verses 7 through 12, and it's this idea that God's knowledge is relational. David writes, Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. 
If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In the Spanish language, there are two words that correlate to our English word, know. It's conocer and saber. Saber captures more of this sense of, of, of knowing facts, of ideas or details, while conocer captures more of the sense of knowing a person. So, for example, you would saber the answer to a question on a test, but you would conocer your friends and your family. See, in this section, David shows us that God doesn't just know all the details of our life in a saber sense, but he knows them in a conocer sense, that he knows you relationally in your pain. See, David describes the relational aspect of God's knowledge by illustrating what theologians call God's omnipresence. It's the doctrine that God is simultaneously present everywhere. So at the very top, when David asks these questions about where he could run away from God's presence, it's not him trying to get away from God. He's not trying to actually escape God. It's him showing through the language of place that there's no situation so chaotic, there's no darkness so deep that God would stay away from you or that he couldn't get to you. Now, while David's words sound really nice here, they don't always express how we feel in our seasons of struggle. You know, too often our hurt is intensified by loneliness. Do you feel like God has abandoned you this morning? Do you feel like he's left you alone to just fend for yourself and figure it out on your own? Or do you feel like you went too far? You made too many mistakes. You said too many of the wrong things for God to be willing to come and get you and rescue you out of the mess you've made for yourself. Or do you feel isolated and invisible to God's people? And that even though right now you're in a room full of people, it feels like you're all alone. Whatever the situation is that you find yourself in today, you are not alone. God is with you. God is with you. One of my favorite Christmas songs is the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Um, I think I like it because it feels like real life. And don't get me wrong, I love the other Christmas songs, like the ones that gloss over life with the candy cane coating of major chords and cheery words that make you want to hop and skip with a hot chocolate around the tree. Oh, but that's just me? Okay, that's fine. Um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it enters into the somber and the painful themes of life, and it offers a single word of hope. It's this word, Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. If David, writing this psalm, had hope in his seasons of struggle because he knew God was with him, how much more do we? I mean, we have Emmanuel. We have the incarnate Son of God, Jesus, who took on flesh, who knows our pain intimately because he suffered himself. 
And after Jesus ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit to indwell us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, and to help us so that we are never alone. God is always with us. And so if it feels like lately you've been making your bed in hell, or as if you've been swallowed up in a sea of grief, or just like the darkness is covered over you and you don't know exactly what's going on, but you definitely don't know how you're going to get out of it. Remember your Emmanuel. God's knowledge is relational and he is with you. The third way David describes God's knowledge is found in verses 13 through 18. It's this idea that God's knowledge is empowered. God's knowledge is empowered. David writes this, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. You see, God knows us not because he's studied us, but because he created us. In this section, David links God's knowledge to God's power, both in the most intricate pieces of our existence and the most expansive aspects of our being. You see, God just doesn't know things about our life, but he's actively working in our lives. His knowledge of you is not academic in the sense of being removed in some divine ivory tower of understanding. God's knowledge of you is intimate and involved. He was there. He was there forming your very being in your mother's womb, when you were a weak and vulnerable unborn child. Ten weeks ago, my wife, Arielle, there should be a picture of them up there, I think. My wife, Arielle, gave birth to our third child, Lucy Ruth Axum. You know, one of my greatest privileges as a husband has been supporting and coaching my wife in the midst of childbirth. It's incredible. As we've seen these three kids arrive, Asher, Abraham, and now Lucy. Whether you're a parent who has been through the wonder and the sheer terror of childbirth, or you've just been around kids and you've gotten to look at a baby before, I think we know that there is something miraculous about looking at a baby. And whether it's you're seeing the tininess of their fingers and toes, or you look into the deep wells of emotion in their eyes when they bless you to open them, or whether it's just holding an entire miniature human in one arm. It's incredible. And it shows us the beauty and the intricacy of God's power as our creator. See, God's knowledge of us is empowered and that it is fully invested with his authority and his ability as our creator and king. See, God's knowledge of you it's not responsive. 
It's not responsive in the sense of interpreting past events after the fact, or even just responding to things as they happen to unfold in the midst of your life. God's knowledge of you is sovereign, and that God has ordained and recorded all of your days. This is what we see, David says, all of your days are written down in God's book. God's knowledge of you is complete because he's in complete control. I mean, what feels out of control in your life right now? We've all walked through 2020 and then, you know, 2020 part two, 2021. Um, Is there anything that feels in control? God knows what feels out of control in your life, but he doesn't just know it. He's already in control of it, and he has the power to make it right. You know, David finds comfort in God's knowledge of him because God is all-powerful over his life. God knows everything about him and can do whatever he wants to in David's life. So when David cries out to God, it's not some sort of pointless complaining to the sky that perchance someone who might empathize with his situation would respond David brings his problem to the one person who can actually make it right, God, who knows him. See, this is the knowledge of God that was good news to David way back then in his struggle. And this is the knowledge of God that is good news for us today, too, in our struggles. God's knowledge is comprehensive, it's relational, and it's empowered. And so this brings us to the second half of our big idea. God knows, so trust him. God knows, so trust him. Um, This last portion of the psalm is tough. I mean, verses 19 through 22 in particular, they form a hard passage. It For me, it stretches me to the limits of my theology and probably beyond the limits of my own theological expression with its language of slaying the wicked and hating those who hate God with complete hatred. That is a lot of hate that we see here in the passage. I mean, this passage has been so difficult to accept and to understand that some interpreters have even suggested that we remove verses 19 through 22 from the psalm because they can't possibly belong I mean, getting rid of those verses, uh, that would feel way more comfortable. I would feel way more comfortable with the psalm without them, but I think that they are actually essential. From a structural perspective, David doesn't give us the option of removing these tough verses because he bookends the psalm with this language of God searching and knowing, you know, showing us this uncomfortable section. It's not some later addition to the text, but this was a key element to the psalm that he intentionally put there. And this passage, it actually lets us see the setting of struggle that informs all the theological expression in the first 18 verses that came before it. You know, from a theological perspective, this section, it challenges and it enriches our perspectives on love and justice, convenience and devotion. And so with that said, let's read this difficult concluding passage again from 19 to 24. David writes, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. 
They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. How do we make sense of this? And how is that passage related to trusting God? Let's start with that first question first. How do we make sense of this passage? As a start, I think that we should put these words from David in conversation with some other words from Jesus. Jesus told us in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But in Matthew 25, Jesus told us that when he returns, he's going to separate humanity out into two groups. One welcomed into the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven, and the other cursed and cast out to eternal punishment. Luke tells us that when Jesus was crucified, he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. But in Revelation 19, verse 11, John gives us a vision of Jesus. When he comes back and it reads this way, Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it, this is Jesus, is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. See, when we see Jesus, we see one who is full of truth and grace. Justice and love. See, Jesus is the loving guide who led David in the everlasting way of eternal life that we see in verse 24. And he is the just judge to whom David entrusted his desperate outcry to bring judgment against the wicked in verse 17. As a people who follow Jesus, we are called to be like him, extending love and forgiveness and prayer to all even those who mistreat us and with whom we may disagree. But we are not called to ignore or abide by and definitely not to participate in evil or injustice. As a people who follow Jesus, we look to Jesus as the perfect expression of love and justice. We see a gracious Savior who offers life to any and to all, even to wicked sinners like the Apostle Paul who once persecuted Christians. God extended love and forgiveness to him. And Jesus is the righteous judge who will by no means clear the guilty. If you don't follow Jesus today, some of these words from Jesus that we've just read and these words from David, and they're calling out to you that at the end of the day, there are really only two ways in this life. We may say there's bunches of ways to live out this life, but when it all boils down to it, there's two. There's life with Jesus, a way of life with him, and a way of destruction against Jesus. If you still have breath in your lungs, if you are sitting and you are breathing here this morning, it is not too late. It's not too late to leave the old behind and to find new life with the God who knows you and the God who loves you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, 
no matter where you're from and no matter what's been done to you, Jesus will forgive your sins, remake your heart, and bring you into the inheritance of the kingdom of heaven if you will follow him. This language of of two ways that we see here, it leads us into our first aspect of understanding how this passage relates to trusting God. It's this first idea, trust is committed. See, trust in God means being committed to God. In the midst of struggle and difficulty, trusting God looks like devoting yourself to God's way of life even when it's harder, even when it's uncomfortable, and even when it just doesn't make sense. When David says that he hates those who hate God with a complete hatred in verses 21 through 22, we need to see his words in the context of the two ways of life that are set up for us all the way back in Psalm 1, the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. David's hatred in this passage is not expressing an off-the-cuff emotional response born out of woundedness or pride, and it is not giving you permission to have emotional off-the-cuff responses born out of woundedness or pride. What he's saying here is an expression of complete and utter devotion to the righteous way of God and to God himself, but in a negative form. If you wanted to express your wholehearted devotion to your spouse, you could do it in either a negative or a positive form. Positively, you could say, baby, you are the only one in the world for me. Negatively, you could say, there's no one else in the world for me. Now, a negative expression of devotion, it often doesn't include within it the person that you're actually devoted to. Instead, you're referencing those that you are rejecting. You're turning away from. You're saying no to in order to pursue your beloved. So when David says he hates those who hate God, he is intensely demonstrating his commitment to God by expressing his rejection of those who purposefully and intentionally, knowingly work against God and who oppress others. As David encounters these men of blood that he tells to depart from him in verse 19, he refuses to take the easy way out. It would be easier for him to just align himself with them and with their way and to join into their sin. And instead, he wants nothing to do with them. And he wants everything to do with God. I think we see the same idea expressed in the New Testament when Paul is kind of riffing on David's words here in his letter to the church in Rome when he writes in Romans 12, 9b, this is from the NIV, hate what is evil, cling to what is good. In your season of struggle, don't slip into prideful self-sufficiency. Don't get tangled up in idolatrous coping mechanisms. Don't choose the path of least resistance when you're tired and weary. Hate the habits. Hate the choices that would move you into distraction that leads to destruction. I know, I know it's easier to try and numb your pain. I know that it's easier to try and ignore the reality of your struggle and escape from it. I mean, maybe you find yourself, at first infrequently, 
and then continually turning to alcohol or food or Netflix as bright spots in a dark day. Instead of turning to and entrusting your pain to God. And these morally fine sources of pleasure, and they will slowly but surely, if you let them turn into idolatrous dependencies so that you need one more drink, one more Uber Eats order, one more episode to keep yourself emotionally afloat. I mean, maybe you've let your, your thoughts spiral. As, what used, as what, what used to be a healthy emotion of anger against those who have wronged you, and you've sat on it. You've reflected on it. You've chewed on it. You've kept it to yourself, and it has turned into bitterness. It has frayed the ends of your emotions so that you can't be kind to anyone, not just those that have wronged you, but to the people that love you and even to yourself. Trusting our God who knows through commitment It looks like hating, rejecting, denying yourself the attractive, easy way of the wicked that leads to destruction and instead wholeheartedly pursuing God. See, trust in God looks like believing that the well-worn rhythms of grace that you practice during the good times in Scripture, prayer, fasting, community, and generosity, that they are still worthwhile. They are still effective. They are still life-giving in the bad times too. The last thing that this concluding passage teaches us about trusting God is that trust is humble. At the very end of the psalm, David writes, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I mean, it would have been understandable for David to be focused on those who have sinned against him, to be focused on the difficulty of his situation. But instead, David pauses to humble himself before God and to ask God to search out in him and uproot from him any wicked way, any idolatrous love, any grievous thought lurking about in his soul. David doesn't use his suffering as a hall pass for self-examination. David doesn't use his pain as an excuse to sin. David knows that through his suffering and through his pain, God is refining him. And he doesn't want to miss out on that good work. Trusting God is humble because it is an acknowledgement that God knows more than you do. And he knows better than you do. Humbly trusting our God who knows in the midst of suffering, it looks like praying and believing even through tears, even through doubts, even through fears, that he is working out something beautiful in you. Humility is hard. And trust is in many ways a leap of faith. It's a desperate belief that God will somehow, some way, turn it all out for good, even and especially when we can't see how that's possible. Will you trust God in your suffering? Will you humble yourself before God? Ask him to search you out, to know you, to uproot from you any wicked way.
Will you ask God to correct you and lead you in the everlasting way of Jesus that is everlastingly good? Will you believe that God's comprehensive, relational, empowered knowledge of you and of your situation it is more reliable than your own perspective? When I lost my home to a hurricane, I felt like I had lost everything in that moment. I had lost my literal home, but I also lost a personal and a familial sense of safety and rootedness. And yet, in the midst of so much loss, I also gained. I gained a new lived-out realization, a new lived-out theology that the God I had grown up with was not just in the Bible that I had read. He was not just at the church where I worship, but that he was with me, and he knew me. He knew my hurt, my pain, and my situation. I was not alone, and I was not unknown then, and neither are you. You are not alone today. You are not unknown today. Whatever your pain or loss or doubt or fear, God knows, so trust him. Let's come to God in prayer.